Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Our passage this morning is interesting because it actually plays two roles for us in, in the place that it holds in Mark chapter 6. If you look at where, where, how, it, how it flows, what the, what the flow of the narrative of Mark 6 is, the first thing that it does is it connects the growth of Jesus' mission with the reality of martyrdom the already present reality of martyrdom in the midst of Jesus' ministry. But it also tells what happened to the man, John the Baptist, that Mark introduced at the beginning of his gospel. So really, in this morning's passage, there are two primary reasons we should care about this passage and why we should give great attention this morning, that we might see Jesus with eyes of faith as the child would remind us, that we might know Jesus by getting a deeper look into the danger into which he steps for the sake of his gospel mission. And secondly, that we might be brought to grieve and even learn from the boldness and the martyrdom of this righteous man, John the Baptist. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this that you would grant us by your Spirit the faith to hear and believe what you would teach us according to the Scripture this morning. 
work in your people, that we might know, that we would grow, that we would have a greater depth of understanding, but you would also do the work in the midst of that understanding for transformation, that you would bring repentance, that you would bring faith, that you would bring joy, that you would bring hope and salvation in the midst of the preaching of your word this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning's passage begins, as we find it, in verses 14 through 16 with King Herod, who has heard of the mission of Jesus. King Herod, hearing of Jesus. You can see it there in verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it. That is, if you go back to verse 13, you find what he heard of. And they, that is Jesus' disciples, verse 13, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples are on a mission. And the king in the region hears of it. Verse 13 speaks of the success of the mission of the disciples of Jesus. But this is important. Verse 14 speaks of the spread of Jesus' name. Do you catch that? You have the disciples in verse 13. They're super successful in this mission that Jesus has sent them out on. Clearly, he provided for them according to his promise, right? But what was the word that got around to the king? The word that got around to the king was the spread of Jesus' name. Do you hear that? The mission of the disciples is the mission of the name of Jesus. What is it the center of the gospel of the kingdom of God? News of the appearing of King Jesus. Jesus' name became known. This is actually the cause for the insertion of this episode into the flow of Mark's story. Uh, Notice it. If you're sort of a a person who enjoys stories, notice the flow of the story. It's actually interrupted. We're going along. We're learning about Jesus. We're learning about his miracles. We're learning about him raising up disciples. Now he's sending out disciples. Why are we talking about John the Baptist all of a sudden? He's old news, isn't he? Much as John the Baptist's ministry became known, so too was the ministry of Jesus becoming known. There's a bit of a link there. That's why this passage is inserted in this particular moment. But a question arises very quickly. While much is becoming known about Jesus' name, what did the people really know about Jesus? Or, another question for us this morning, who is Jesus? This will become an increasingly important question in Mark. Note this morning's passage as a passage that is the beginning of a turning point in the coming chapters that really deals with the question, who is Jesus? Verses 14 and 16. They indicate that Herod was haunted by what he had done to John the Baptist. He was haunted by that. Meanwhile, Others see in Jesus echoes of Elijah, perhaps, or or even the ministry of the prophets that they had longed to return, that had been absent for 400 years. Here they hear Jesus, and he sounds like God's word itself. We shouldn't be surprised if we would come to know Jesus. And there's confusion about who Jesus is. Is he sort of a ghost, a specter to haunt King Herod? 
Or is he a voice of the prophets? Who is Jesus? The speculation of Herod and the people gives us a significant glimpse at just how great of an impact Jesus' ministry was having in the region. They were speculating in, in huge ways about who Jesus is. There was an expectation in the time that, Jesus, that God would send a prophet or a Messiah to rescue the people. And there's speculation about this guy, Jesus. But this expectation was confused and it was mixed with a variety of myths and personal hopes and even political hopes. This is a serious issue both then and today, church. Hear this. Jesus is who he is. Jesus is not the product of a variety of myths or our personal need or our political hope. Jesus is who he is. His name is who he is. He will not be defined by another nor the expectations that others have about them, about him. It's important for us today that he is not defined by anything inside of us or surrounding us in the world, that we receive Jesus, listen, according to his own self-revelation. We know who Jesus is because Jesus tells us who he is, no matter what our speculation is or the speculation of his contemporaries or our contemporaries. We must receive Jesus not by our heart's desire, by, by his self-revelation, he's not defined, hear this, particularly this, he's not de defined by our need or our, our hopes, and he's not defined by our fears. He is defined by who he is, and we have to receive him as such. He wasn't defined by the hopes of the people in this passage, and he wasn't defined by the fears of Herod. Jesus is who he is. Let's spend a little bit of time on the relationship between Herod and John. The passage begins to turn. and begins to turn on that word in verse 17. For, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, if you do a little bit of the math on that sentence, something's not right, all right? Something's a little sideways in that. There's actually a lot that's sideways in that sentence. The story turns on the word for, and it, and it turns because the time frame changes, and our story in that moment, in verse 17, becomes a flashback to the recent martyrdom of John the Baptist. Don't miss this. this. This isn't something that's happening at the same time as the disciples going out on their mission. This is a flashback going back. We're not sure exactly how long. It's important because we need to note the role that a flashback plays in the telling of a story. A flashback is not the main point of a story. So we shouldn't preach 
this John the Baptist and Herod narrative this morning without keeping our eyes open to what's taking place in the fullness of Mark chapter 6 and even in 5 and 7 and even in the Gospel of Mark all together. A flashback is not telling us something about the past. A flashback is telling us something about the present to give us a greater historical circumstance. And it turns out that this particular flashback doesn't just tell us something about the present, but it foreshadows something in Jesus' own future. As we listen to the story about Herod and John the Baptist, let us not lose sight of the context into which it's given. And the context is the growth of the ministry of Jesus, about the gospel of the kingdom of God, and about the spread of news of the name of Jesus. Now, that said, we're going to dig into the flashback a bit. Let's pay attention to what it is so that we might understand it in context. We're going to begin with just a very little bit of history of Herod. That Herod seized John is not nearly as important as why he seized John the Baptist. John the Baptist is that precursor to Jesus, the one who came to announce the, the, the way of the coming of the Messiah, the one who is not himself great, but has come to, to announce the one who is great, who is coming, who is Jesus. John the Baptist is seized for a particular reason. Again, verse 17, second half, for the sake of Herodias. His brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. That he is Herod. Because Herod had married his brother's wife. We need a bit of a history lesson here. Prior to the King Herod in our passage this morning was a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a regional king acknowledged by the authority of Rome. He was a bit of a puppet king. Herod was the king at the time of the birth of Jesus, who killed the children of Bethlehem, who caused Jesus to become a refugee in Egypt, all right? Are you getting a little bit of a picture already about these Herods? They're a problem, right? Upon King Herod's death, the kingdom was divided by the Romans into four parts to be governed by his children. So if King Herod the Great was a king, then for these four children to put on the title king was a bit of a stretch, all right? They have an ego problem automatically just by the adoption of the word king in front of their name. Herod, from our passage today, was one of those four children. And the issue in verse 17 is that Herod had taken Herodias. Why can't somebody be not, not named Herod in our passage this morning? There's some conversation that Philip's name was also Herod, all right? His brother, Herod, had taken Herodias who was actually his brother Philip's wife, to be his own wife after divorcing his previous wife. This is a mess. And John the Baptist was bold to speak up to a king to tell him this isn't a mess. That's a euphemism. This is a mess. This is sin. This ought not be. Verse 18 for John had been saying to Herod, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. As Leviticus 
20, 21 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. The whole of John's ministry has been a call to repentance. We shouldn't be surprised that he would be so bold as to call a king to repent as well. His, his message is simple and it's continuous and, and it has an incredible integrity to it. At all times, he's calling a people to repentance to prepare for the way of the Lord who is King Jesus. The Lord sent John to prepare the way of the coming of the Messiah. And the preparation for the coming of the Messiah is repentance. We should hear that today. We should see in our passage that even in the face of great danger, John is faithful and bold to proclaim a call to repentance. By God's grace and the faithfulness of his chosen prophet, John, that word comes to us still today. The call to repentance remains to prepare the way for the Lord. Friends, there's a call in that that's so important for us to hear. We have all kinds of mythologies and hopes and so on and fears about how in the world we could get ourselves right with God. And so very often we think, though, the way that we can get ourselves right with God is by demonstrating our righteousness. But doing something right for him, by putting the right foot forward, and John the Baptist is a clear and resounding reminder that works its way through the centuries to us. The only way to prepare the way for the Lord is by admitting, confessing, and turning, we are not right. We have no foot to put forward, to repent. We're told in verse 9 that Herodias held a grudge regarding John's call to repentance. Friends, that speaks through the ages as well, doesn't it? Who of us likes it when someone stands there and tells us that we have something to, to repent of? Who of us do not begrudge the one who calls us to repentance? Remember that Herod held John in prison on account of Herodias, but Herodias wasn't satisfied with imprisonment alone. She had become hard-hearted in her unrepentance, and she wanted John dead. And, and you see Herod, he's kind of keeping John in prison to try and keep him quiet, just to pacify Herodias, and in part also to protect him. You see, Herod feared John. Look at verse 20 with me. Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe in prison. I mean, safe in prison, right? Knowing that he was a righteous man, well, that, that's good to know that John was a righteous and a holy man. It's right that Herod should fear John because John was faithful to preach the truth that Herod refused to receive with faith. Herod was right to fear John, not because John was righteous, but because John was right. Herod's fear was not sufficient, though, to cause any genuine change, any genuine repentance of his sin. I wonder if Herod did not only fear John, but he feared Herodias and those who were around him. Herod seemed to think, that by listening to John, by bringing him in, having these conversations, we see this a number of times with believing, gospel-proclaiming prisoners being brought in to proclaim the gospel to kings. 
And the kings seemed to think that if they could just listen a little longer, that it would help them spiritually. But the message of John was not listen. The message of John was repent. I wonder how many hundreds and thousands of services like these have been filled with people that think that they're doing something about their spiritual condition because they come and they listen for a while. We are not called to come and listen. The call in the midst of the listening is for every single one of our hearts to repent and believe the gospel. I'm glad you're listening, but I hope you and I are both actually listening and that we hear the call to repentance this morning. Pay attention. Many of us here have given an ear or a curiosity to the preaching of the gospel for years and perhaps decades. Perhaps being a part of a church has worked its way into a regular rhythm of your life. We get the, a, a bit of a glimpse that perhaps this little John and Herod thing had worked its way into a regular rhythm of Herod's week. But the first thing that the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us is that we are sinners. You see, Jesus, the perfect man, died a horrific death on the cross. Oh, the, the, the horror of John the Baptist's death is nothing compared to the horror of the one that he came to point to in the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He died that death. Why? He had no sin. You see, the death of Jesus Christ doesn't out Jesus. The death of Jesus Christ, high and lifted up on that cross, outs you and me. He did not need to die except for that that shame of the cross represents the shame and the guilt that would be upon me if he wasn't there in my place. It was in the place of sinners who repent and put their faith in Jesus that Jesus hangs there. He outs our sin. Jesus' death is a reminder that apart from faith in him, we remain in our sin. Jesus' death doesn't only proclaim forgiveness, it also proclaims our need for forgiveness. It doesn't just proclaim love. It proclaims our need for love and grace. Do you see it? Do you know that you're not only loved by God, but apart from his love and grace, you would be lost? Jesus' death is a reminder that apart from faith, we're still in sin. The proclamation of the gospel begins with a call to confess our sin, and repent. Don't just sit there any longer in either curiosity or complacency. Turn and repent. Acknowledge your sin and turn to Jesus. Our passage this morning holds out a particular sin. I was moved every time I, I read it during the course of this week. It is the sin of a horrific abuse of power at every level. I don't want to presume that there is no one in this room who has not suffered a significant abuse of power, whether suffered under it or yourself have been in a position of power and you have abused that position. That you have not used your position of power to abuse or destroy another person in the face of a threat to your own power or position. I want us to sit in that for a moment. Don't pass over in this passage by identifying only with John or the disciples or being thankful for Jesus or just being a bystander to the situation. 
consider if perhaps in this passage, the person that best represents the way you have walked is Herod. And friends, that that might be crushing. If you would sit there and say, you know what, actually in here, I'm Herodias or I'm Herod. And that might be crushing to the point of what? I'm just going to go home. But friends, hear John's call. Even to Herod, the gospel was proclaimed to turn and repent, to be prepared to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you need to sit under the ministry of John the Baptist this morning. Beloved by God, by the word of God through his prophet John. Repent of your sin. Now, as the narrative continues, look at verse 21 with me. But an opportunity came. Now, that's an interesting way to introduce this next portion of the story. An opportunity came. Observe the scene. Herod, he has a birthday, and he throws a birthday banquet. Who is at the birthday banquet? It's not just a couple of his close friends. It's not just family members or members of his immediate court. This is the nobles, the military commanders, and the leading men in Galilee are all in this massive banquet room. This is the gathering gathering of all the heads of state. It's the assembly of the king's cabinet to celebrate the king, to make a really big deal of him. Both the king's glory and the king's shame is going to be on full display right here in this room with all of the heads of state gathered. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Friends, this is one of the most tragic episodes recorded for us in the Bible. There's nothing about what happens here that ought not make our stomachs turn and our hearts sink. Don't pass over it as just a story about John the Baptist. There was a young woman in this room on that day, and she was used by every single person there, including her own mother. The Herod family was notorious for banquets such as these. The debauchery that would take place at these parties, Herod and his guests being pleased by the girl's dance, he he makes what would surely be a drunken-induced promise that he'll quickly regret. Friends, there is tragedy all over this story. This is a difficult subject for all of us to hear, but for some who are here, it may be particularly difficult, where some would quickly identify, well, perhaps reluctantly identify with Herod. Some quickly identify with this young girl, Some have been used in situations and caused to be pawns of simple sensuality. Brothers and sisters, we can see in this passage how unrepented sin compounds itself. And there's tragedy all over unrepented sin. And that unrepented sin sears the conscience and opens doors not only to our our own destruction, but a seared conscience leads to the abuse of, of others. Friends, there is an incredible call and a cause for repentance and a crying, is there a Lord who can do something about this? 
Is there a Lord, is there a king that can put down a Herod or save him from himself? Is there someone that can rescue people out of a situation like this and call them not only to repentance, but to faith and grace and love and glory? Herod had made his home in this sort of debauchery. It was commonplace. I hope that especially if you've been made to feel the impact of such abuse, that you can see that the grace of God in John's condemnation of Herod's sensuality is a call for such abuse to end. There is a grace that John, at risk to his own life, said this should not be. This sort of seared conscience and debauched, abusive sensuality at the highest of levels of power should not be. The way of the Lord is good, and he sends his messengers at great cost to themselves at times. His word to call us not only out of our sin, but to end the harm that we bring to others. There's a particular evil in this passage that Herodias is willing to use her own daughter for her political ends. Herodias tells her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head. The girl came, the passage says, immediately and with great haste. Friends, there's a tragedy in that as well. Her conscience appears to already be being seared that she would come immediately and with great haste. She says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. We need to hear this especially today. Our cultural moment has little patience for calls to repentance or constraints upon our own choices. But we see in our passage how such unrestrained sin brings destruction. We need a call to repentance today. Sin begets sin and suffering. And God's call to repentance is meant to interrupt that, that cycle, not only of sin, but also of suffering. The call to repentance is a grace to us. We do well to listen. Now the king, he sees the situation, he remembers the calls, he remembers the conversations with John the Baptist, and the passage says he is exceedingly sorry. If he had only responded with sorrow when John had called him to repentance. But that's not why he's sorry here. If he would have allowed John's call to pierce through his pride in this moment, what debauchery and suffering would have been avoided. But note what follows his evil request. He says in verse 26, it's because of the oaths and because of his guests. You know what that means? He was exceedingly sorry because his pride was being abused. This is a man with a seared conscience. The king is sorrowful, but if we look at Herod's honestly, the sorrow is not the sorrow of conscience but of pride at the heart of his sorrow is that he's caught in a trap of his own making and he doesn't like it. And even in this moment when he, where he sees the way that his pride has led him to this particular place, he's still unable to turn and repent. Herod is the quintessential double-minded man. He's not a man of faith. He's a man of unbelief. 
Kent Hughes was so helpful. He says this, but he was a double-minded man, grossly evil, but with some good impulses. I would argue that even in those good impulses were impulses to protect his own pride. And thus, according to James, being a double-minded man, he is unstable in all he does. The daughter makes the request. The king executes the request. And the daughter brought the gift and presented it to her mother. Now, I know many of you know the story, but don't miss the tragedy. This young woman has brought, been brought to the depths of the evil of those who are supposed to protect her and provide for her. Their unrepentance has brought her into the center of a trap of sensuality and murder. Now, I know I've called you many times already this morning, but I hope that we would not only hear a call to repent, but we would hear a call to grieve, right? This happened. This was a flashback to an event in recent history for the disciples. This is tragedy, and we ought to grieve. In fact, a significant part of our repentance is sorrow. The theologians would call it contrition, that we would not only want to turn from our sin, but that we would weep over the tragedy of sin, that we would agree with the Lord. Not only was this something I should not have done, but I know your way is good, and my way leads to destruction. Verse 29. At the end of the passage, we're given a little bit of a glimpse when his disciples heard of it, that is, the death of John the Baptist. They came... And John the Baptist's disciples took his body and laid it in a tomb. I am again so thankful for the guttural realism of the scriptures. We didn't have to be told that. We have everything that we need to understand the story and the severity of the boldness of preaching the gospel. And yet we're told that his disciples came. They took his severed body and they laid it in a tomb. I invite you to allow verse 29 to take you to John the Baptist's funeral. You see, John the Baptist was not just a powerful teacher or a prophet of the past. Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Go to the tomb of John the Baptist and mourn the loss of a great prophet, a great and righteous man who was unworthy to untie the sandals of King Jesus. What grace that we're given this opportunity to mourn and recognize, you know what? As, as, what, as much of a tragedy as this is, this is our God's precious care for the least in his kingdom. He loves his people. And he would see to it that his spirit would inspire his scripture writer to write about the burial of John in his tomb. You see, we should mourn death. We should grieve at bold sacrifice for ministry, and such mourning should embolden our own proclamation. But we should also note 
that there is yet another profound way that even in death, John the Baptist has proclaimed that one who is greater than him would soon come. You see, John's body laid in a tomb. And it stayed there. But the one who would come after him, the one in whom was his hope, the one that he called people to repent and prepare their own hearts to receive, he rose so that one of these days John's body will rise out of that tomb and he will be resurrected with his Lord. You see, John was nothing. He would become dust apart from the Redeemer and his death proclaimed that. May that be true of our lives that all the way up through a bold proclamation of the gospel that when my body is laid in a tomb, it'll stay there until the coming of the Lord that we proclaim. Friends, there are at least three implications for us in this passage. I would call us to see three things. The first is this, that John rebukes sin. We've covered it well during the course of our time. Killing a man, putting his head on a platter as a party favor is precisely the sort of the thing that the Herods were known for. And yet, they were known for that. That wasn't some new thing. That wasn't out of character. There's a, a sense that this was the sort of thing that was going to happen at this party. And yet, John the Baptist, knowing the Herods, spoke the truth. Imagine for a moment if Herod had turned from his sin in repentance and faith. Not only would Herod be rescued from his own sin, John's life would be saved. Herodias' daughter would have been spared the tragedy on display in this story, and Herod would himself have become a witness. Herod, in his belief, would have become a witness of repentance in the life of Herodias. But he didn't listen. When we listen to the Lord's word, his call is to repentance. Are we listening with faith? We join ourselves to the bold proclamation of those who have brought the word to us by faith. And may God use such a call to repentance for great good, not only in your life, but in the lives around you. Not only to rescue them from the destruction you would continue to wreak in their lives, but as a witness of what it looks like to turn in repentance and joy and find the love and grace of a God who is quick to save. It is a powerful reality that John is known by even Herod as a righteous and holy man. Why? Because he was bold to proclaim repentance. The second thing, Herod sears his conscience. We see Herod in this passage flirting with many things. Godless sensuality, political maneuvering, debauched extravagance, and curiosity about holiness and truth. It sounds like one of these things is not like the other, right? No. It's just one of the things in a long line of things that Herod flirted with. Friends, the business that we are in this morning is not something to be flirted with. The business of hearing, receiving, understanding, and believing the gospel is serious business. 
And the only way we can give true attention to the call, the message, the proclamation of the gospel is to leave behind our flirting with these other things and give attention to our God. That's what repentance is. God, these things, they no longer have my attention. Speak to me. Change me. Herod may be curious about John, but his searing conscience continued to flirt with the world. How often is that like our, our regular pattern, our regular story? You see, Herod is not a man of faith. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable. And ultimately, he would be caught in his own snare. May that be a warning for us. May that not just add to our ability of self-righteous condemnation of Herod, but be a warning to us. And third, Jesus' name is known. The central purpose of this passage, remember it's a flashback? The purpose of the passage is to tell us something about the present, and the present is Jesus' name being known. The central purpose of this passage in Mark is not to tell us what happened to John the Baptist or to tell us about the debauchery of Herod as much as it is to tell us about the reality of setting in, uh, that is setting into which the, 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 the setting into which Jesus is stepping in his ministry. The reality of Jesus' ministry is a reality in which martyrdom was a real possibility. And yet Jesus, like John who went before him and all the prophets those 400 years before who went before them, they proclaimed the word nonetheless. You see, Jesus is only mentioned in the first verse of our passage today, but make no mistake, the whole thing is about him. John the Baptist, why did he come? To proclaim the coming of the Christ. Our passage is sandwiched between verse 13 and verse 30, in which his disciples are not called into mission, but rather they're called to Jesus. And in being called to Jesus, they're called to proclaim him. And as Jesus' ministry grows, so too are the dangers growing. That's the central message that we should carry with us when we gather again next week to consider Mark. When you read through the book of Mark during the course of this week, there is a growing seriousness in the ministry of Jesus. Those who speak the word of the Lord will always be opposed in the world. Some will make their opposition blatant and deadly, Herodias. Others' opposition will be veiled and mixed with curiosity, but the only legitimate response to Jesus is faith. Now, no matter where you sit in this passage this morning, whether your conscience is pricked by a call to repentance or you're, you're grieved by the debauchery and tragedy on displaying Herod's court, no matter where you sit this morning, when I, call, when I want to call you to Jesus, look to him, it is wisdom and grace, the wisdom and grace of our God alone that calls us to repentance. The call to repentance is good. His word is a restraint on our own self-destructive and abusive sin. It is a call of restraint upon us. His word calls us out of our natural ways and the ways of our world into a way that is good, that we might delight in him. And I want to call you to look to Jesus, who is alone the righteous one. Yes, 
John the Baptist walked in an incredible faithfulness, but he himself told you he's not the righteous one. The righteous one is to come. Let us stop fooling around with lesser things, searing our conscience, and give attention to the righteous one. And I want to call you to look to Jesus, that while the power of sin is great over our lives, John still preached the gospel to Herod. Really? He's too far gone, right? John still preached the gospel. The call for us today that as much as the power of sin is great in our lives, there was someone who was committing murder as well. His name was Paul. And Jesus preached the gospel to him. He repented, he believed, and he walked in faith and he found a beautiful way. While the power of sin is great in our lives, if we remain in our sin, it will lead to our own destruction and judgment before a holy God. But Jesus has conquered sin and death. This is, do we believe this? Is this true? That even if we feel the weight of our sin this morning and all this call about repentance and stuff, Pastor, you're crushing me here. Jesus has crushed sin and death. And it's been taken on him so that you don't have to take the weight the guilt of that sin anymore but rather you your confession is lord this sin that i confess today is the sin that you have died for me is that you have taken from me that you have forgiven that you might take the justice of the holy father and that my might receive your righteousness brothers and sisters this is the good news of the gospel trust in the lord today and never stop turning to him there's a reason why we have this prayer of confession in our service, and it's not because you need resaved. It's not because you have to name every little thing, but so that you can rejoice in remembering and seeing deeper and deeper just the rescue that the Lord has brought to your life. Never stop turning to him in repentance, faith that it might become joy at the praise of his glory. Heavenly Father, it is a grace if we love you. It is a grace that we have seen that in the depth of our sin, we are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. But your spirit has invaded, your word has made known the reality of our desperate circumstance, and we turn to you in faith. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you sent many, many at even great cost to themselves to preach the gospel to us that we have heard, that many in this room have believed. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that if there is one here who has not believed, that perhaps has heard many times, but sits with a seared conscience, flirting with other things, I pray that even today, your spirit would convict of sin, that they would turn from the ways of the world, confess sin, receive grace, and walk in your righteousness and glory. Lord, we trust you for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ alone, we pray. Amen.